For decades, America has tried to combat the harms of drug use primarily through banning drugs and incarcerating people who use them. But this has caused a violent underground market for drugs, increasing crime in our communities. It's caused contaminated substances, increasing overdose deaths, and it's caused incarceration to skyrocket, destabilizing families. What we're doing isn't working. Crime, death, and broken families are the collateral damage of using the criminal justice system to address the public health issue of drugs. If you're looking for a better path forward, you're in the right place. What if we changed our drug policies to prioritize life, health, harm reduction, and thriving? And what if it benefited all of us? Our criminal justice approach to drugs had a beginning and it can have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. I'm Christina Dent, your host. And if you're new here, End It For Good is a nonprofit started in 2019 based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. You can head over to episode 34 to hear my story as a conservative Christian foster mom changing my own mind on the best path forward with drugs, and then come on back and dive in deeper. I didn't change my mind overnight and most other people don't either. We all need time to learn, think, ask questions, and explore. Whatever your perspective is, I'm glad you're here. Let's journey together. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Angela Mallett, End It For Good's Director of Outreach, for the last part of this little series that we have done, um, kind of recreating some of the conversations that we have had over the last couple of years and the things that have helped us as we have been developing the way we think about substance use and recovery and the criminal justice system. And today we want to dive into the ideology of harm reduction versus the programs of harm reduction. This, this idea of harm reduction um, is newer to me. So when I started thinking about what changed my mind on drug policy, I would have, I always did say, because I think it reduces harm to people Mm -hmm. if you legally regulate drugs rather than criminalize them for a whole variety of reasons that we've talked about in many other ways because it reduces harm. And then there, I started hearing this term harm reduction as a particular idea rather than just the idea of like, Hey, I think something reduces harm to people. I think speed limits reduce harm by having fewer accidents, you know, that, that sort of idea that there's actually sort of a framework associated with this term harm reduction. So I wanted to have this conversation with Angela, who has done a lot of work in understanding harm reduction and thinking through the implications of it. And one of the things that has been helpful for us as we have talked through it is separating out what harm reduction programs there might be and how those might be funded versus the idea of reducing harm to people as sort of the defining feature of how we hope people will think about substance use and addiction. How can we reduce harm to people? So Angela, talk us through how you think about these things and your journey on this. Okay. So I think my, the first time I read the words harm reduction um, was back in 2017. Uh, So I started working for Department of Mental Health and uh, was working with the opioid task force doing outreach and 
they said, like, I'd been at work for a couple of weeks and, you know, I knew that my role was like, I'm going to do outreach. I'm going to travel all over Mississippi. I'm going to plan these town hall meetings and invite people to come out and um, you know, invite all kinds of people. So I've been working a couple of weeks and my boss says, oh, hey, by the way, we want you to do the naloxone distribution, Narcan distribution. So if you're listening and you don't know what Narcan is, um, naloxone brand named Narcan is the opioid overdose reversal medication. So it's a medication that, well, if someone is experiencing an, an overdose, whether it's from fentanyl or heroin or any kind of opioid, naloxone is the antidote for it. And so it will go into your bloodstream. You can, there's different kinds. There's an injectable kind that most EMTs use. Um, then there's the nasal spray kind. That's the nasal spray is, is what we bought and distributed. Um, and it's what's available now to the public in Mississippi. So it will reverse the effects of an overdose. Anyway, so back in 2017, my boss says, hey, we want you to do Narcan distribution. So can you just build a training and, and just you're going to train every police department in the state. So take care of that for us. And I was like, all right. Uh, so I started learning about, and I had heard of it before, um, and and of course I knew what it was, but I did not know this broader term of harm reduction. So that's, that's where I was introduced to it. So I did uh, Narcan distribution and lots, hundreds of Narcan trainings over the years, and I really started to to see like, okay, in other states, they, they do Narcan trainings, but they're also giving out supplies that are helping people who are still actively using substances. And this idea was, was hard for me to wrap my head around. I was like, you're, you're, is that, does that mean you're enabling them? If you're giving like them, if you're giving them a syringe or yeah, like, if you're giving them a syringe to continue use, is that, I mean, I was, so if you're listening to this right now and you're hearing that and, and you're hearing me talk about giving out syringes or giving out fentanyl testing strips for people to test if there's fentanyl in the drugs that they're about to use or giving out safe use supplies like clean cottons or burner kits for people to prepare their drugs to use. Like I know y'all are listening to this right now going, what is she talking about? Is that crazy? So if you're feeling that way, it is totally all right. I did too, you know, years ago, I was just like almost appalled by the idea. But then I, I said, okay, let's, let me be rational about this. And I just kind of started thinking through what if in the midst of my darkest days, if there would have been someone or some entity who would, who could have said to me, Hey, Angela, we know you are struggling right now. And if you're ready for help, we're here to help you. But if you're not ready for help, like we want you to be safe in the meantime. And when I started kind of thinking along those lines, like sometimes people are not ready to stop for a whole thousand different reasons. They don't believe they can. They don't know how. 
uh, or or they're just terrified of, of what's waiting on the other side of it and all the consequences they have to face. Um, but we don't want them to die. And over the years. Or get diseases. That's a big or, piece of right. the syringe or, exchange yeah. programs is they help people not get HIV or hepatitis or serious. Right. And not, not can contract diseases so so learning that and just kind of easing myself into what does harm reduction really mean um I started to come around on these ideas and and then you know to be quite honest the more funerals that I went to of people that died Mm -hmm. uh, from fentanyl contamination the more I recognized like I don't want to keep going to funerals. I don't want to meet any more parents who are devastated because their kids have overdosed. And I met a lot of them because that's what my job was, was outreach like every day for years. And I still do it. I'm an outreach director for End It For Good. So my job is to meet people in every community across the state and and along with that, I meet a lot of hurting families and I just recognize like how harm reduction interventions could have helped them. And so it just made sense to me, like we need this here in Mississippi. We need an organization that is going to do harm reduction work, get get it out into the communities. Um, so in 2019 i you know started you and i started talking about this stuff and tried to to think about how do we how do we get um some change here in our state so you were you know incubating your end it for good idea and and i had recognized like there there were some limitations to what harm reduction could look like in mississippi uh, yes, Narcan, like I had helped create the Narcan program in our state and that was up and running. Every law enforcement and first responder agency now has it. They carry it. They use it. Lives are being saved. It's wonderful. Um, what's the next step look like? Well, our current laws in Mississippi prohibit us from having something like a syringe exchange program or or distributing fentanyl testing strips. So I tried to get creative and I was like, all right, so what else is harm reduction? And I learned about this program called LEAD, which is law enforcement assisted diversion. If you guys have been listening to Christina and I, you've heard us talking about, I ran a LEAD program in Mississippi and what LEAD is, is a way for police officers to practice harm reduction in in the way that they interact with people who are addicted to substances. So in a in a when you have a lead program functioning, your patrol, your everyday street officers, your patrol officers, when they encounter people who are in crisis, whether that's because they have substance use disorder or they're even in a mental health crisis, the officers are allowed to divert those individuals into help, like divert, divert them to a caseworker, divert them to a social worker, um, 
they are given the discretion to divert these individuals rather than arrest them. So to me, that's that's harm reduction policing. So this idea, and I, so I started learning about it, and I learned that this model it was created in Washington State about 12 years ago, and it had phenomenal success rates and has since uh, now spread to about, uh, there. well, in 2019, there were 100 cities across the country who were implementing LEAD programs. Now, I would say it's far more than that because um, there's been a lot of intentional effort from Department of Justice to expand these programs. I'm not sure what the number is now, but it's certainly more than 100. Um, there's grant opportunities for these. So I thought, okay, well, so that's the next step for harm reduction here. So let's do this. And um, and luckily, all of the pieces came together where we were able to pilot it in in Mississippi with the Ridgeland Police Department. So I think that is what showed me harm reduction can look like these the delivery of these supplies, right? But it can also look like a change in the way that our systems respond. And and so I think for me, that's where this the difference between I harm reduction practices and harm reduction ideology came into play. And, um, you know, because I, you and I had spent hours and, you know, just day after day talking about all of the harms coming from our systems and coming from our policies. And so I want to, you know, so then we, it just made sense. It's like, okay, so if we've got these harmful policies and the war on drugs is causing harms in all these di- different ways. How do we reduce that? Well, yeah. the ultimate, you know, solution is a legal regulated drug supply uh, and and changing our responses to them. And so places like Portugal have decriminalized. Well, that's reducing some of those harms. Um you know, and you and I, like we talked about this and we're, and, and so now while also doing the lead program with Ridgeland, you know, I'm, I'm still traveling with you and with, you know, we're going to all these different cities and we're talking, doing, you're doing your TEDx presentation and um, thinking through these ideas. And I, I just kind of sat back and was like, okay, so yes decriminalization is the answer or, you know, legal, even further than that, legal regulation is the answer. But in the reality of Mississippi, we're decades away from that happening, right? We're decades away from, uh, from having a legal regulated drug supply in our country and in our state. So what, I want, I I don't want to go to any more funerals between now and then. So how do we reduce the harm? Well, the answer to me lies in harm reduction. Hey friends, this podcast is just a part of the work we do at End It For Good, inviting more people to this conversation on changing the way we approach drugs and addiction. We want strong families, safe communities, and policies that uphold the dignity and value of every single human life. If you're not signed up for our monthly newsletter yet, head on over to enditforgood.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. You'll get all the info on the rest of the work that we do, including live events 
and it'll get you plugged in to the end of her good movement. And I think it's important to make the note that even for me, and I, I support harm reduction as an idea, and there are a lot of harm reduction tools, um, programs that are evidence-based as life-saving and health-improving and cost-saving and all these different things. Um, and then there are some that I'm like, hmm, that still makes me uncomfortable. I'm not, I don't know that I necessarily would support that. Um, and so, you know, so I, the point, my point that I'm trying to make is there is not an all or nothing. It is not either I don't support harm reduction as a response or I do. And then if I do, I support everything that everybody thinks should be in that. And if I don't, then I support nothing. There are people who support Narcan distribution and kind of nothing further on that harm reduction programs front. Uh, there are people who would say, okay, I could I can do Narcan and I could do fentanyl testing strips because fentanyl is such a huge problem for overdoses right now, but nothing further. Or maybe they will do those two and they could get to syringe services because the research shows that people who participate are five times more likely to enter treatment than people who don't participate. Okay, maybe they can get there. And then, you know, maybe you head on to other things, an overdose prevention site, and they say, bridge too far. I cannot yeah. go there. That is just, you know, I, I could never support opening a clinic where people can come and use whatever drugs they happen to buy on the street under the care of medical personnel who can revive them if they overdose. Uh, maybe that's just the bridge too far. And I think, you know, I have, I have space and for good has space for people to be wherever they are on mm -hmm. that spectrum of things that they um, would agree with. My guess is probably if Angela and I lined out every conceivable harm reduction practice that she and I would even have differences in things that we would would think, yes, that would be something I could wholeheartedly support. And no, I think that that feels over the line to me of, you know, whether it's enabling or it's, you know, I just, I don't, I just don't think that's the role of someone else to play. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's important to say too, like, okay, we think about an overdose prevention site. Why is that needed? Why, well, tell, why do tell we her. even... Tell the people listening what an overdose prevention site is. Yeah. So it's like a, um, a clinic that you could go to, uh, you buy your drugs on the street or wherever you get your drugs from, you go to an overdose prevention site. They have, let's say clean needles. So you're using, um, clean equipment as you are injecting, if injecting is your method of, um, using and, uh, they are there. So if you overdose, they can revive you. Uh, they also generally have opportunities for you to engage in other kinds of positive things. And, you know, if you need um, healthcare for something else, they might be able to refer you. Or if you want to get on medication assisted treatment, they might have the resources there to say, okay, great. You need to be at this other clinic at such and such a time and make mm -hmm. an appointment. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a connection point with healthcare. Um, so these have been running in other countries. They run in Canada. Yeah. They've run in other places around the world. Let and me drop a little, let me drop a stat in here. So, there you, go. you know, this is a 2019 stat. Um, in 2000, in 2019, there were 134 
overdose prevention sites in the world. Not none of them in the United States, other countries, 134 of these clinics operating. And uh, in the in the entirety of the time that these clinics have been in existence, there's not yet been one single fatal overdose in an overdose prevention site, not one. So if that doesn't speak volumes, I, so that statistic caught me because I, I too had these reservations. I'm like, what? Like a space where you go and and you use drugs. And, and so I, I just wrestled with it. Did it make sense feels to me? Like like, enabling. I, yeah. it, it, it feels like something's just, something's not okay there. Um, but when I saw that, I was like, oh, okay. So, so it works. Uh, apparently it obviously works. So now in 2022, there are um, two, maybe three, two open overdose prevention sites in the United States. The first one tried to open in Philadelphia a few years ago and met, was met with, with litigation. Um, and so that, as that, since that case played out, the Supreme Court ruled that they could open. And so now there's one in Philadelphia, there's one in New York City, and I think there may be one on the West Coast. Don't quote me on that. I mean, I need to I know they there. tried to open one in California and it was also shot down by the city council or something like that um, yeah. of the place where they uh, were hoping to open it. All right. So, so we've spent some time talking about these overdose, overdose prevention sites, but, but we've spent some time talking about harm reduction, um, services, supplies, you know, now I want to, let's zoom out a little bit and say, if you can't get there on the need and the uh, value of those kinds of programs, that's okay. Like, I get it. We get it. Christina and I get it. This stuff, it's hard to wrap your head around. But if you can't get there, will you zoom out with us and agree or or even just toy with the idea, like, if is it not important to reduce the harms that we can and reduce the harms of the systems that are affecting people? And so, so many of the conversations that I have daily in Mississippi are how are we reducing the harms in the systems are, that are affecting all of these people? And so, you know, if you listen to our last episode, you heard Christina and I walk through this domino effect of harms that comes from criminal justice responses to people who use drugs. So we talked about we talked about fines and fees. We talked about harms to family structure. We talked about harms to finding employment, harms to people's health. So even if you can't get there on, should we be giving out clean syringes? Let's look over here and zoom out and say, okay, can, how can we reduce the harms in some of these systems? Um, you know, my favorite one to talk about is drug courts, intervention courts. You know, I think that that drug courts are a form of harm reduction. Um, I think they reduce the harms of our prison systems. So for people who 
uh, are experiencing substance use disorder and have committed a crime and need to be held accountable for this crime that they've committed, um, being placed in an intervention court program is a is far less harmful than being sent to you know serve prison sentence and parchment. Um, however, within those systems, there's still lots of room for improvement too. Um, there are there are ton, lots of ways that that our drug courts can you know think about well how do we reduce the harms within this this structure that we've created for people. Um, so it has and, an opportunity to be harm reduction. They're not always run in that way. It could be that correct. somebody has a drug court experience and it's like, that wasn't anything close to reducing harm for the people that, <laughs> that were participating yeah. in that. That was as traumatic as jail for me. I mean, there are people who certainly have said that. like Very you know, much so. So it's not right. a guarantee that it is, but it's an opportunity for that ideology to take root in a system. Yes. And so, you know, so what I want to do is I want to talk to drug court professionals in our state and say, like, is your program reducing harm for the people that are engaged in it? Or are you increasing harm in their life? And and can you can you take it? Can we all take a step back and look in the mirror and and just do an evaluation? Like, what are our what are our policies? What are our rules? And and requirements that we're placing on our participants that are helping them or actually like creating more obstacles for them, more hoops for them to jump through. And can we do something about that? You know, these are the kind of conversations that that I, I want to see happen in our state um, and in these is particularly in these drug court systems, because I think they have the capacity to do a lot of good. And to help a lot of people, if you can finesse it and get it right and make it to where it's client centered and trauma informed and you're following best practices. And it really is a, an experience of restoration rather than an experience of uh, further detriment to your life. Hmm. Yeah. So as we've been talking, I've been thinking about a couple, you know, me, I'm always thinking about caveats. Um, so caveats on like, one thing that was helpful for me to think through on harm reduction is like, there's a, there kind of the two ways that I see it playing out are there are some times where we're talking about like a proactive program for someone like a syringe service program where someone is actually proactively providing something to someone mm -hmm. who is using substances versus other kinds of harm reduction that might be like stopping arresting people for possession. So we're not giving them something. It's more like we're just stopping a behavior that's harming them, but it's right. like proactively harming them. Um, and I, so I think there's, that's just a maybe helpful distinction to make. And people might say, yes, that's where my line is. I'm okay with like stopping harmful behaviors that we're doing to people, but I don't right. want to cross that line and start like providing programs or resources or whatever to people that maybe that's maybe that's somebody's line that's okay um but the other caveat is just kind of where the funding for those come from so some of some harm reduction programs have government funding behind them some of them don't we can you can agree that a program should be allowed to run without necessarily wanting 
government dollars running that program. So like um, there are states where syringe service programs operate and they only operate through nonprofit dollars. So it's it's um, it, the state funding. Now, maybe they're getting some federal funding because there is federal funding for those programs, mm-hmm. but this their state is saying, no, we're not spending any state money on this. If you can right. fund it another way, go for it. We will at least allow them to operate. We won't consider syringes, you know, paraphernalia for these programs um, that would be criminalized. But so even there, it's we're not saying, okay, if you support this, that also means you support XYZ, all of these different kind of funding streams. That means you've got to support that too. No, we're just saying some of these, all that's in the in the way of them operating is laws that just say they can't. It's it's right. not that we're saying, okay, you you've got to um you have to make them legal and then you have to provide all of the funding out of your, you know, state budget or something like that. There are other ways. There are people who want to raise money for these things. Um, yeah, sometimes they can be that way. It could be that that's the thing you, you support, you support allowing the freedom for these, for these, um, programs to run, but you may not support a particular way of them being funded, or you may want all of it to be funded a particular way. You can come to a different conclusion on that. That's, there's lots of space here, but I wanted to get to, um, Angela, we have talked about just recently, this was like a two week ago conversation for Angela and I talking about harm reduction about, the difference between natural consequences versus criminal justice consequences, because what we've run into are a lot of people who have experienced the harm of a loved one's addiction. And they say, no way I can't get on board with this. Do you, do you have any idea how painful this is? Do you have any idea how chaotic my loved one's behavior they're stealing from me? They're completely undependable. They had lied to me that, you know, all of these different things. And you're talking about reducing harm to them. They're the ones causing all of the harm. And I'm supposed to just say, (laughs) you should be reducing the harm to me, the, you know, the hurt person. Um, And so there, there's this, like this rub of, wait a second, are you just saying, oh, we should just have compassion for the person who is, you know, struggling with the substance use disorder and, and there should be no consequences for them. They should just be able to, you know, to kind of do whatever. And we, everyone around them has to kind of create this cushion that no, we're, we're not going to do anything that makes your life hard or anything that is, is hard for you to deal with. We're going to try to just, you know, cozy you into a new life. So we were talking about that and it was just helpful to, to even like verbalize the difference between a criminal justice interaction that tries mm-hmm. to modify your behavior and give you consequences versus like if you're stealing stuff from your mom and she kicks you out that's a that's a natural consequence of of not being able to be living in the same situation with someone who can trust you like that's that's life that that is yeah. what happens that's people putting up boundaries so that they can they can live a a healthy life. Um, to talk through that a little bit, how you think about those that difference, um, and maybe that's something that we need to be better at clarifying as we're talking about this. That we're not talking about no consequences. This isn't just about a, a world where where nobody feels you know, pain except for you know the people who are trying to support. 
Hey friends, you may be listening to this and you're new to this conversation or you don't agree with our perspective and that's fine. You're welcome here. But if you agree and you want to know what you can do to spread the movement, head over to enditforgood.com slash two minutes. That's the number two and the word minutes and sign up for our weekly two minutes for good email. It gives you one thing to do in less than two minutes to expand this conversation. You're busy and this is a quick way to make a difference. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of the same premise with with drug court, like being in support of harm reduction responses does not mean there's an, an absence of accountability. So you have to be accountable for your actions right now at, you know, 12, 13 on a Wednesday, but <laughs> like when you're not using drugs in the same way that you have to be accountable for whatever actions you commit while you're using them. Um, so there is, there's no, no absence of accountability. What we're, what I am advocating for, what we're advocating for is that we can reduce harms that come along with our criminal justice responses. And there are going to be natural consequences if you are creating havoc in other people's lives. And that might be, you know, Christina gave the example of stealing from a parent or, you know, you may get a divorce if your spouse is not, if you're not, um, showing up in your relationship in the way that your spouse is okay with because of your substance use, well, there's going to be some consequences behind that, and and that you may you you may lose your job. So we're we're not saying that people who use drugs should exist with no consequences. Right. We just say that they should have their natural consequences from the people and you know the jobs and the the places around them. Um, but we can lessen the consequences that comes and lessen the harms that comes from criminal justice intervention in people's lives. Yeah. And I hope that's a helpful distinction and it's helpful, particularly to families who feel like, are you just telling me I just need to be a, a, a mat and just be walked all over because all I've got to do is just be loving and kind and never say no. Passionate. Right. <laughs> no, 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 no. You've got to, you have to have boundaries. We're talking about, we just don't have to add extra harm by arresting them for possession or something like that. Um, even when drug courts, we don't, we don't need to put people in jail for or people in drug courts for possession. That would be kind of the world we hope to move towards is that we're not arresting people for possession anymore. But for the people who commit another crime, who do steal yeah. something, who do drive under the influence, um, but their core problem is a substance use disorder, that would be a, a good opportunity for something, an alternative to incarceration yeah. like drug court that could be really helpful to them. So, so before we wrap up, though, I, I, I want to I want to to make one last little point that was really helpful for me on the topic of syringe exchanges. Um, I remember probably four or so years ago, I posted an article on Facebook about syringe exchanges and how they can be helpful. I don't even remember what the entire context of the article was, but I posted it. And a, a lady from my hometown who I've known for my whole life commented on it. And she said, how could you like, so you're just saying 
give them syringes and let them, you know, do what they want. Isn't that enabling? And um, so I was really scared because, you know, you admit if you upset one of the sweet ladies from your hometown there, it's all kind of troubles <laughs> that comes with that. There you go. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I just kind of, I was like, you know, I need to talk through this with her. And I was, she and I were able to talk and I was able to explain to her that, you know, you have to reckon with the reality that whether you like it or not, if people are injecting substances, they're going to do it. And your choice is like, do you, do we try to make it so they can do it safely and they don't contract diseases while it's happening. And also the whole entire, the, the entire time, like there's always the option of, are you ready for a higher level of care and explaining that to her? And, you know, over the, the past few years, I've, I've realized that the value of syringe exchange programs does not just lie in the delivery of a sterile syringe or the collection of a contaminated one so it's not thrown out on the streets. Like there's Yes, there's some value in that. But the real value that comes from these programs is that constant peer-to-peer, non-judgmental touch that is happening with the person who's using drugs. Because they know at any, on any day, they may, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they might get up and then go to the syringe exchange and get clean syringes because they are not stop. They are not ready to stop using that day. But on Saturday, when they wake up and they're like, you know what? I'm done. I am ready for something different. I don't want to do this anymore. They can go there and they can say, hey, can you help me? And then immediately the people who work in these syringe exchange programs or the, in these just harm reduction centers are going to immediately say, yes, how can we help you? Is, does that look like, are you ready to get in, in, into a MAT program or are you ready to get into, you know, let's try to get you to detox. Are you ready to go to residential treatment? You know, what is it? What step are you willing to take? Yes. That is the value of these harm reduction organizations. It's not the fact that, oh, we're giving them supplies so they can continue to use. It is like, it is because we have built trust and we are here when you are ready for something different. Right. That's keeping people alive and healthier until they're ready for that, which mm-hmm. improves just the the drain on the healthcare system. Even if you even if you take away the the positive impact that it has on the life of someone who's using, that there's just it is better for all of society if our healthcare system does is not being um, inundated with people who are contracting serious diseases. Um, so that's a that's just a positive win for everyone there. And then for them to have that healthcare touch where they know that they can go and get help. Whereas if you don't have that and you wake up one day and you're ready to stop using, like who who are you going to go to that you're sure is not going to look at you like, oh my goodness, I what yeah. you've been you've been injecting heroin. Oh, I can't. Yes. Or, <laughs> or even worse, turn, turn you, you in, the turn you into the police. So if you have that relationship already, 
what an amazing gift that is for people to be able to go back to someone they have a relationship with to say, I'm ready for something different. And I think that's why you see statistics like people are five times more likely to enter treatment if they participate in a syringe service. There is relationship, there is trust, there's opportunity so that when that window opens, there is someone there who helps them get through that window and get into a different life. Yes. Yes. Well, thanks, Angela. This is the end of our uh, little series for now. We might come back and do one later, but um, it's been fun to talk through some of these deeper things for people who are like, I've heard the, I've heard the surface level and now I need a little, a little deeper understanding of the parts that are making me uncomfortable and the parts that I do feel comfortable with help me understand it better. Hopefully this has been um, helpful. And as you can tell, we're still on a journey. We still have these conversations all the time. I hope that we are um, humble enough and curious enough to admit when we learn something new that changes the way that we think about some aspect of this work or um, the the right kinds of harm reduction. Um, there was an organization that we were talking with who um, they they only will support with grant funding. It's a private foundation, um, evidence based harm reduction practices. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I mentioned like three different things to them, and they said, so we support two of those, and we don't believe that the research is there yet on the third one. It sounds like a good idea, but we do not have the research yet that says that it actually improves you know, health outcomes or that sort of thing. And so I think that that was like, oh, I, I, that's, that's interesting because I thought the research was there on that. Um, So that's interesting. I need to learn a little more about that and see like, does, did I think that just because it sounds like such a no brainer to me Um, or do we still need to, to, to be certain that, that that particular program is actually saving lives or is actually improving health outcomes or um those sorts of things so i just think that's it's a it is a a lot of these programs are new and they are some of them have been proven to be effective at delivering the outcomes that are intended and there are new ideas coming out all the time of different things that we could try um and we we want to see those tried and studied and pursued the ones that are improving health for people and we're here for the journey. So thanks Angela. If uh, anyone listens to our episodes, um, this series that Christina and I have just completed and you have questions about anything you've heard me say or Christina say, or if I, if I've gotten something wrong, like tell me, I want to know, I do not want to go around spreading, you know, ideas that are inaccurate, or maybe I haven't actually thought through all the way. Um, We at End It For Good and and me, myself, like we want to, to learn continuously. So please reach out if these ideas intrigue you. Uh, If you want to say, hey, Angela, Angela, maybe you should think about this. My email is Angela at enditforgood.com. And uh, thanks for listening. Yep. And I'm Christina at enditforgood.com. We're always here for the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the End It For Good podcast. So how do we shift our drug policies from a criminal justice approach to a public health approach? By inviting one person at a time to change their mind. Changed minds are the catalyst to changed laws. But many people are only willing to have this conversation when they're invited to by someone that they trust. 
that's you. Invite your friends, coworkers, other people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Start a conversation and join the movement to end it for good.